0: All right, we're going to worship the Lord through the reading of his word now and pray that he would uh, bless the reading and preaching of it to our good and to his glory. So I'm going to pray and then we'll jump in together. Let's pray. Our father, we um, pause and give you honor and praise. But I do pray that we would all take a moment to think about your goodness to us. That we're breathing because you are sparing life. We're in our right mind because you were holding all things together. Your word says that all things were created by Christ, through Christ and for Christ and all things are being held together by his powerful word. And so I pray that we would be gazers, that we would be worshipers, that we would be onlookers as we are moved to marvel at the goodness of God through Christ to us. we pray Lord Jesus that you would soften our hearts That your Holy Spirit would work and move as your word is read, that as it is preached, that as it is heard and applied, that you would do the work of strengthening your people, of conforming your people to the image of Christ. That those who are hurting would find help, that those who are struggling would find healing, that those who are prideful would be humbled and those who are in despair would be encouraged. Will you do all of that during our time this morning? And we promise to give you the honor. And I promise to give you the praise for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Ezra chapter 8. So if you're new to Redeemer, we're working our way through Ezra. And we are almost done. So we're in Ezra chapter 8. It's a sweet chapter. uh, Sweet, sweet, sweet chapter. We're going to start in in Ezra chapter 8, verse 1. And... Read through verse 20. And you'll notice some very strange names. I'm probably going to mispronounce a few. Um, But pray for me as I read and try to make sense of it. And these are the heads of their fathers' houses. And this is the genealogy of those who went up with me. This is Ezra writing now from Babylonia during the reign of Artaxerxes the king and of the sons of Phinehas, Gershom, of the sons of Ithamar, Daniel, and of the sons of David, Hattush, and of the sons of Shekaniah, who was of the sons of Parosh, Zechariah, with whom were registered 150 men, and of the sons of Pahath, Moab, Elahoinai, the son of Zerahiah, and with him 200 men, and of the sons of Zatu, Shekaniah, the son of Jahaziel, and with him 300 men, now the sons of Aden, Ebed, the son of Jonathan, and with him 50 men. Of the sons of Elam, Deshiah, the son of Athaliah, and with him 70 men. And of the sons of Shephatiah, Zebediah, the son of Michael, and with him 80 men. The sons of Joab, Obadiah, the son of Jehiel, and with him 218 men. Of the sons of Bani, the son of Josephiah, and with him 160 men. Of the sons of Bebi, Zechariah, the son of Bebi, and with him 28 men. Of the sons of Asgad, Jehanan, the son of Hakaton, and with him 110 men. Of the sons of Adonakim, those who came later, their names being Eli Phalet, Jewel, and Shemaiah, and with them 60 men of the sons of Bigvi, Uthai, and Zakur, and with them 70 men. And I gathered them to the river that runs to Ahava, and there we camped for three days. And as I reviewed the people and the priests, I found there are none of the sons of Levi. And then I sent for Eleazar, and Ariel, and Shemiah, and Elnathan, and Jerrib, and Elnathan, and Nathan, and Zechariah, and Mashalom, leading men, and also for Jorib and El-Nathan, who were men of insight, and I sent them to Edo, who was a leading man at the place Kasaphia, telling him, telling them what to say to Edo and his brothers and the temple servants at the place Kasaphia, namely, send us ministers for the house of our God. And by the good hand of our God on us, they brought us a man of discretion, of the sons of Mali, of the son of Levi, son of Israel, namely... Sherabiah. And with his sons and his kinsmen, there were 18 men. And also, Hashabiah. And with him, Jeshiah and the sons of Merari. And with his kinsmen and their sons, 20 men. Besides 220 of the temple servants whom David and his officials had set apart to attend the Levites. And these have all been mentioned by name. Amen. So what I want to do is, is go ahead and... Um, not make an apology of sort, but I, am, I have entitled this sermon, The Hand of God on the Men of God. And uh, we're going to be talking about masculinity today and we're going to be talking about biblical manhood today. Now, when I say that, I know right men, the moment I say biblical manhood or I say headship or leadership of a man, I know that there's sort of this noise that's in the background that, that, is, that, is, that wants to sort of push forward. But what about the women and what about equality and what about our rights? Now, the reason that we have to preface this whole conversation is because the world sort of gets this thing wrong. The fact that I actually have to qualify and quantify this is symptomatic that we can't have this discussion out there because out there things are just all messed up. But make no mistake about it. We don't have to be afraid to talk about biblical leadership and biblical headship because it is given by God. It's given by God almighty going all the way back to Genesis. Right. Where he makes man first. And he gives headship and authority to the man. You be fruitful. You multiply. You rule the earth and you subdue it. And so uh, the the moment we hear that. Some of us may want to cringe. Well, what about women and what about our rights? Well, here's the thing. I'm going to read something to you because this is sort of our position and our posture as a church. We don't think those two things are incompatible. And we don't think because God affirms masculine leadership that that by its very nature undermines the value and rights of women. We think that in this church and in the gospel, as things are to be restored in Christ, that one of the things that God fixes, he fixes is this whole tension that you sort of see in the beginning where the woman wants to rule over the man. The man wants to lord his authority over the woman. We believe that in Christ, things are restored to how they ought to be. And so I'm going to read something. This is sort of our position, our posture. And I hope you sort of hear what it's affirming and what it's not. And it's from a book written by Ligon Duncan, who has preached here several times. He's going to preach here at the end of the year and by a lady by the name of Susan Hunt. And he says this, complementarians, that's sort of our position here. We're complementarians. We believe that the Bible teaches that God has created men and women and they are equal in their essential dignity and human personhood, but they're different and complementary in function with male spiritual leadership in the home and the believing community and the church. And this is to be understood as a part of God's grand design. This means that both men and women are image bearers of the living God. We are each fully human and all that that entails. And we are equals before the cross. We are brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ. But God has made us different. He has given certain functions and roles to men and certain functions and roles to women. And these roles are distinct. And yet our essential dignity, our essential worth are the same. You see what it's doing? It's preserving this reality that when God says, let us, let us make man and our image, and he made male and female. So there is something about femininity and being a woman that reflects the character of God. And there is something about being a man and being masculine that reflects the character of God. And those two things aren't at odds with one another. Now, it may feel like that out there because you have corrupt, misogynistic, egotistical dictators who lord authority, right? You feel that. And so we feel like we have to have that conversation. But not in here. I can look at a woman. That's why I had John read all of those passages. I can look at a woman, an older woman. You're my sister in the Lord. I can look at a younger man. You're my brother in the Lord. Right? Like like we don't have to have this competing attitude. Now, we good there? So now I'm going to talk all about men today. But women, I don't want you to take offense because I firmly believe that when men lead well, the people we lead are blessed. And you may be a single mother and you may be a member of this church. And I will tell you to your face, You have men in this church who love you and who care for you and who care for your children, who care for your well-being. We're not off the hook, right? So what I want to do is start with two images and then we'll dive right into the text. First thing, I want to show an image. Show me the first image, Jimmy. Oh, that ain't Jimmy. All right. So most of you remember this image, right? It's by a guy. He's the pilot or the captain. His name was Sully. Sully. And you all know what happened, it happened in January several years ago. There was uh, problems with his flight, and, and what he did was, was actually beautiful. He actually landed the plane in the Hudson River. And what you know about him when you read the side story, this was before the movie and the book came out, when you read about how he, I mean, he literally was the last person off of the plane. He went up and down, up and down that aisle on that plane two times, and made sure that every single man and every single woman and every single child were off, and then he was the last person off. That's leadership. Show you another picture, because you see the antithesis to that. Y'all remember the guy? He's he's steering the, the 23rd largest cruise ship in the world. And he's off the coast of Italy and he's drinking and he's kind of playing behind the wheel. He sees some wealthy people having dinner out there on the banks and he's waving and showboating. And then he goes and he actually hits the rocks. Turn to the next slide. And kept, I mean, just the, the entire ship is just gone. Now, here's the thing. Do you know what, what he did? The exact opposite. He was the first person off. The very first person off the ship, the ship is on his side. He was the, And then he, he lies sort of under oath, saying that he tripped and fell into the escape boat. <laughs> All right, you can kill it now. Thank you. <laughs> you see the contrast, though? You see one man, he's the last one off, caring for everyone under his care. And the other guy, first man off, is in prison right now. 33 counts of manslaughter, crew members died, passengers died, he abandoned ship. I say that because I think at times, it's hard as men to sort of see and feel that what I do day in and day out, it matters. And I wanna tell you that it does, that what you do, what we do day in and day out, it matters. And I'm just not talking about what you're doing in the workplace. I'm talking about how you live and how we live at home and how we love and serve our church and how we care for our wives and our children and how we serve those around us with needs. We might not think it matters, but it does matter. So the question for every single man and every single little boy in training who's going to become a man is how do you lead? How are you leading? The question never is if you're a leader, if you are a man, you are always leading. The question is how are you leading? God has given you that role. He's given you that right. He has affirmed that responsibility on you. And how beautiful is it that for God, God Almighty, to entrust, to entrust us as men with this care to walk with him and to care about the world and to rule and to subdue and to protect and to lead and to live out our faith as men submitting and bowing the knee to Jesus and to be a blessing to those around us. I start this way because I don't want to have to apologize for talking to men or about men this morning, because Ezra doesn't. When you read this text, it smells like brute. You know, like the cheap man cologne, right? I always sort of, in my mind, I'm like, man, what does this text smell like? Like when I, when I read it I, mean, what is it, I mean, what does it smell like? What is it doing? Look, man, when you pick this chapter up, Ezra chapter 8, notice how many times he's talking about men and sons of men and numbers of men. Look at it. I mean, just take a quick glance. Look at it. I got 200 men in verse 4. I got 150 men in verse 3. I got 218 men in verse 9, 160 men in verse 10. I got 28 men in verse 11, 110 men in 12. The whole passage, it's about men. Now, that's important. That should cause us some alarm. Like, wait a minute. What about the women and children? They're here. Go down to the section after hours. Look at verse 21 of chapter 8. And then I proclaimed they fast there at the river Ahava that we might humble ourselves before our God and to seek from him a safe journey for ourselves and our who? Children. So Ezra's not a fool. Like he knows that children are going with him. And yet from chapter 8, verse 1, all the way to chapter, verse 20, it's not even about the women. It's not about the children. It's about the men. Now, I love how there's this seamless transition from the end of chapter 7 into chapter 8. Look at it. Look at it. Look at it. It says, I took courage for the hand of the Lord my God was on me. And then I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. You see that? Like... He gets courage because the hand of God is on him that the king is letting him go and he sees that as an expression of God's covenant faithfulness and the first thing he does, I gotta get some more cats to roll with me. I cannot take these people and this goal and watch out over all of this to make sure we get from point A to point B. I have to have some men with me. And look at what he says in chapter 8, verse 18. And we've seen that phrase several times. I told you, it's chapter 7 and chapter 8. The hand of God is used six times. And this is the third time it's being used. And it's pretty amazing when he says the hand of God is on him. The hand of God is on him when he had favor. The hand of God is on him when he is released. The hand of God is on him when they get there safely, when they make that 800-mile journey. And you know what else the hand of God is involved in? Look at what he says. And by the good hand of our God on us, they brought us a man. You see that right there? Like the hand of God is even associated with giving him a man of discretion. What is he doing? He is putting the provision of men on the same pedestal and on the same playing field and on the same plane as the favor he has with the king. It's important that we're going and we get to go back to our land. But what's just as important, it's going to take men to help me do it. And so what we're going to look at is is two types of men in this passage. You have these leading men. And I want to dig into sort of what makes him call them leading men. And you get these lagging men. That they don't go like they're not in the count. And here's the beauty. The beauty of the gospel is how does God treat the men who are lagging behind? He calls them to be who they are. So the first thing I want to look at is these leading men and you see the phrase you see it. I mean, look at what it says right there in chapter seven. Verse 28, he says, I, I gathered leading men from Israel to go with me. And so when you see this phrase right, right there in chapter 8, verse 1 down through 14, what he does is he lists the leading men. He says, I gathered leading men to go with me, and then let me tell you who they are. And so the first thing we know is that we know that we know their number. We know that if you do this math, there are 1,496 leading men who go. And we also know their divisions. You'll notice this, this, this it's the way Ezra writes it. It, it really is gene- genealogy. He, it, you, you'll see, look at verse 2 for an example. Of the sons of Phinehas, all right, so right there, sons of Phinehas, that's a man, Gershom, and then of the sons of Ithmar, Daniel, and of the sons of David, Hattushan. So what you're getting at is you get a man, and then you get his offspring, and then you get everyone else who came with him. And he does that over and over again in the text. That's the format. But here's the thing, by looking at this list just as, as itself and not sort of in the context of the broader story, we might not realize what's going on here. So here's, here's an assignment. I, I, you must have a Bible right now and you must open it up and you must put your hands on Ezra chapter two and you must have your hands on Ezra chapter eight. Now, if you remember when we preached Ezra chapter two, it took me 50 minutes to say all those names I mean, it was like five times the amount of names that are here right now. But here's what I want you to do. I want you to sort of get a, get, a, get a smell of what Ezra's doing. So here's an assignment. Now, look at Ezra chapter 2, verse 3. I'm turning over there with you. Ezra chapter 2, verse 3. Look right there. The sons of Parash. 2,172. So that name right there, Parash. Now, turn back over to Ezra chapter 8, which we're in this morning, and look at chapter 3. I mean, verse 3. Of the sons of Shechaniah, who was of the sons of who? Parash. All right. That's one right there. Now, go down and go back. Go look at chapter 2. Go back to chapter 2 and look at verse 6. Do you see the sons of... Pahath-Moab, right? Pahath-Moab, there's a dash between the name. Now turn back over to Ezra chapter 8, verse 4. Of the sons of Pahath-Moab. You see that? Right there. Now, we're going to flip it around. Now look at chapter 8, verse 5 and 6. You'll see the sons of Zatu and the sons of Aden. Now turn over to chapter 2, verse 8, and then chapter 2, verse 15. Look at chapter 2, verse 8. You see that name? The sons of Zatu. Look at chapter 2, verse uh, 15. The sons of Aden. Now, I could make you do this for maybe 10 more minutes and you will finally see something. And what you will see is this, that these lists of men that you see in Ezra chapter 8, out of the 15 men, 12 of them, 12 out of the 15, are the same cats from chapter 2. Now, that might not seem like a big deal, but this is 80 years apart. Those first exiles who came in Ezra chapter 2, this is 80 years later. And guess what's happening? Some of their grandkids are coming and their grandkids and their great-grandkids are coming. Do you see what Ezra is saying? The reason these are, quote, leading men it's because these are the men who have been passing their faith along. That this men, these men, Big Vi, and I could give you all of their names, but when they left, they left a legacy. And now they're dead. They're in Jerusalem, buried somewhere. And you know who's coming now? Their grandchildren. That's who's coming. The same families who came the first time are coming the second time. Why? Because those men led in their homes and they passed down the faith and trusted to them and so eighty years later they are in the ground and they are dead but their faith is alive and their families are living and their families are following after them as they followed after God. Amen. Isn't that what God said? He says my covenant is with you and it's to your children And to your children's children, didn't he not say that if you would read my word and put it on the frontlets of your eyes and if you would put them on the doorpost of your house, he says, do these things, do these things. He says, I promise you, one day your kids will ask you, why do we go to church and why do we go to upside down and why do I have to go to Sunday school? And you will stand firm in the faith and say, you know what, because the Lord is good and he is worthy to be praised. He has redeemed my soul from hell and purchased me to himself. How can we not worship and follow hard after the Lord? And I know it doesn't feel like that at times. We have kids who stray and they don't get it. But here's the thing. God is faithful to his own covenant and his own name and his own promises. And what we see in this text is, men, you lead and you read and you pray and you be the first one to make sure that your heart is right with the Lord. The Lord says, I will bless that. I will honor that. And so that's the reason, right? So I want to do a few things. I want to apply it this way. So what you see here is strong, masculine leadership. And here's the thing. It's not ironic that in a few more weeks, you got this folder right here. And even though Trey Watkins is, we got the dates wrong, it still says that he's 39. It still says that uh, Polly is 12. She's not 12. She's what, 15, 16? 16? <laughs> The the, the, the data might be wrong, but the men are the same, right? (laughs) Hey, this week and next week, pray for these men. Elders and deacons nominated by you. I've spent 12 weeks with these men. Teaching them about what it means to lead here at Redeemer. And we're putting the ball back in your court. You get a chance to vote for the men who will lead you and care for you and protect you. And we are not ashamed that we don't have female elders or female deacons. I don't think we have to apologize for this sense of headship that we think that comes from the scriptures. Where the best thing for God's church is when God's men lead his church after God's own heart. And that is for our good. Amen. And so you'll get a chance in a few weeks when we have a congregational meeting. Another thing what you see about the faith is that it's passed down to children. So this means something, right? This means that we are right in wanting to hire a children's pastor. We are right in having a youth pastor. We are right in having People in the church who volunteer and teach Sunday school, you are right when in an 8 o'clock service, when I go too long and the service goes too long and you get mad because we're getting out of church at 9.50 when we should have got out at 9.30, and now you've prepared your lesson all week and now you have to rush and corral children, you are right to be upset at me for that, right? Why? Wow. <laughs> you are right. I know somebody back there. I know somebody. I know it. I already know it. But you're right, right, you're right, because you take their calling serious. It's serious business to be in here worshiping the Lord and me teaching and preaching, but it's also serious for us to have time to disciple our children. And parents, we're here for you, whether it's the nursery or upside down or youth group or Sunday school or retreats. One thing that we get right, and I'm not bragging, I'm boasting in the Lord, is that we believe that what our volunteers do For our children, it matters. Kids, you're in here right now. And I want to look you in your eyes and say, one day I will be dead. And your parents will be with the Lord as well. And we will have failed you. If we do not entrust the faith to you, that's been entrusted for us. Amen. A lot of things will make your parents proud. But the thing that matters the most is that you know our Savior. And so we're not doing this just to entertain you. We're doing this because we believe that you really need a Savior. And we believe that that Savior is Jesus Christ. And we believe that it is our covenant responsibility to you to grow you up in that faith and we're committed to it. That's what you see in this passage. Men who lead and men who entrust the faith to their children. Now, I wish that we could stop here. We get out at 12, 12. But we still have a whole other chunk to kind of work through. So I'm going to try to get through this. Ezra lists these leading men. He does. But what he also does is he shows us these lagging men. These men who just, they, they, they weren't ready. They weren't with it. They weren't contributing. And so what I want to do is sort of talk about this because I think his, his response to them is actually beautiful. But you'll see it. Look at, look, at, look at it with me, these lagging men that Ezra loves. He actually loves them, and he loves them in a beautiful way. And I want to come back to that. I want to close with that. But notice what he says in in verse 15. And so I gathered them at the river that runs to Ahava, and there we camp for three days. So Ezra gets them to a river. He lets the kids run and play. He lets everybody stretch out. And then look at what he does after that. He says, I started to review the people and the priests. And so Ezra does what most of you will do. If you got more than three or four kids and you go to a truck stop, you use the restroom, the first thing you do is when you get in the van is to make sure everybody else is there. Everybody's accounted for. That's what Ezra's doing. He's he's on his way to, to Jerusalem, and they hit a pit stop at a river. We're going to camp out three days. Now let me get my list and make sure that this list of people who left with us, let me make sure that everybody else is right here. And notice what Ezra says. And I found there are none of the sons of Levi. Not one. Not one single son of the tribe of Levi. And that's, that's really problematic. And I want to show you why But why would this have been strange? Why would this have been strange of all the men who were going that there are no Levites? Let me show you two ways why it's strange. The first thing is if you know the letter. Remember last week we looked at Ezra chapter 7. That's a letter that King Artaxerxes wrote that he gave to Ezra to take with him as he traveled across, right? Now, notice what King Artaxerxes did. King Artaxerxes gave permission. Look at chapter 7, verse 13. And I make a decree that anyone of the people of Israel or their priests or their who? You can say, "Uh, or their who? Levites. In my kingdom, who freely offers to go to Jerusalem may go with you. So the first thing that King Artaxerxes did, he says, hey, Levites, y'all want to go? Go. I'm giving you permission to go. Permission. He grants permission. Now, look at, look at what else we see in, in verse 24. On top of the permission, he gives them provision. Look at verse 24 of chapter 7. We also notify you that it shall not be lawful to impose tribute or custom or toll on any one of the priests or the who? Levites. Now, put this together. The king has given Levites permission to go. He's also given them Provision. Look, bro, y'all don't have to pay taxes. You don't, nobody will tax you or toll you or custom. You get income tax-free money. Just work at the temple to your God and you pay no taxes. I mean, and then when you read the rest of chapter seven, he says, and whatever else you lack for these men, give it to them out of my royal treasury. Permission, provision, and yet no Levites. And so when you lay that on top of the reality that they aren't there, look at chapter seven, verse 13 again, that anyone who freely offers to go to Jerusalem may go. You know what that means? They didn't want to go. I don't want to go back and do that. I'm fine, like right here. Now, now why, does, why is this a big deal? It's a big deal because when you go back and look at Deuteronomy chapter 10 and Deuteronomy chapter 18, we learn about the Levites. And so I'm going to read these two verses and they come from Deuteronomy chapter 10 and they come from Deuteronomy chapter 18. This is what the word of the Lord says. And at this time, the Lord set apart the tribe of Levi the tribe of Levi, to carry the ark of the covenant of the Lord and to stand before the Lord, to minister to him and to bless his name. Therefore, Levi has no portion or inheritance with his brothers, for the Lord is his portion. The Lord is his inheritance. You see what's happening? When they were to go into the promised land, that every tribe got land except the Levites. We don't know what the Levites got. They got God. They said, you get me, you get me, you work for me, you minister to me, I am your lot, I am your portion. Now, how are they to be provided for? Look at Deuteronomy chapter 18. And the Levitical priests and all the tribe of Levi shall have no portion. Rather, they shall eat the Lord's food offerings as their inheritance, for the Lord is their inheritance. And whenever the people offer an ox or a sheep or grain or wine or oil or fleece, you must give some to them. You hear what's happening? That the Levites were to be ministers to the Lord for the people, that they were to be cared for by God. God himself says, I will take care of you. You will serve me. I will draw near to you. You will be involved in the deep things of the Lord. You will draw near to me in my tabernacle. And so for the Levites, it's not a rejection of a place. It's a rejection of a person. It's a rejection of God's people. In other words, when they don't go, what they are saying, what they are screaming, we don't want God. We don't want to minister to God's people. Now, Derek Kittner, who's an Old Testament scholar, he's, he writes this The absence of the Levites and other temple servants is an unexpected occurrence. But if we're honest, it was probably natural for these men to shrink from the prospect, which was doubly daunting, not only the uprooting which all pilgrims faced, but the drastic change from ordinary pursuits to the strict routines of the temple. You hear what he's saying? The reason that they're probably not going is because them going to to Jerusalem meant they would have to work in the temple. And them working in the temple means that they can't own homes, and they can't do this, and they can't do that. But you think about it. That's how they were created. That's what God made them for, to be engaged and attuned to the things of the Lord. And so they are defecting from how and who God made them to be. They're checking out. It's too hard. I want my freedom. I don't want to engage. And if we're honest, every single man in this room, isn't that a major temptation? To be home? And to not be present. To spend our money selfishly. To think about our times on our own terms. Isn't it tempting to work a hard day? And to want to put your feet up and not read and not pray? Isn't it tempting? It's, it's tempting. And I do think one of the ways that our fallenness shows itself, men, is in our passivity and how hard it is to lead and to do it well. We get intimidated and encumbered and distracted by so many different things. And so Paul tells Timothy, no, 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 you as a enlisted in the army of God, you don't get entangled in civilian pursuits. And yet, isn't that what happens? Entangled social media, entangled with hobbies, entangled. I'm not saying I'm not saying any of those things are wrong, but isn't it tempting to be entangled by everything else? Except the people that have been given us to lead and to love. And so we check out. I get it. I get how they can say no. Here's the beauty. How does. Ezra handle these men. Does he wag his finger and say get it together? You get it together? That's how the world does it, right? I don't know if you watched the Atlanta, Fal- not Atlanta Falcons, the Arizona Arizona Cardinals and the Seahawks game earlier in the year. It was 6 to 6. That was the score. It went into overtime, 6 to 6. That was the score of the game. And after the game, you, you, the two coaches, they both had something to say. And, and, and both kickers missed the game-winning field goals. Both of them missed it and went in, it ended in a tie. And the coach for Arizona, you know what he did? He got up, you got to do better than that. We pay you good money. You have to do better than that. That's what he says. You're a professional. That was his response to his kicker that just failed. Coach for the Seahawks, you know what he said? You're a good kicker. You missed this one. You'll get it next time. Which coach do you want to play for? The one who calls this out of you? Who remembers who you are? Or the one over here who shames you and wags his finger, says, get it together? Of course you want to play for the Seahawks. Here's my point. Look at how Ezra loves these lagging men. Look at what he does. Look at what he does. He says, I found that there were none of the sons of Levi. Now go to verse 16. And so then I sent for Eleazar and Ariel and Shemaiah and Elnathan and Jerib and Elnathan and Nathan and Zechariah and Mashulam. And notice what he says about them. These were leading men. So what does he do when he finds out that those men are lagging over there in Babylon? The first thing he does, let me get nine leading men. And let's do it. After he gets the nine, look at what else he does. And for Jereb and Elnathan, who were men of insight. And I sent them to Edo, who was also the leading man at the place of Cassaphia. And we think that that's a place or a city or a synagogue. We're not sure. But we know that Edo was there and we know that he was sort of over the Levites and over the temple servants. And so what does Ezra do when he realizes that men are not up and they're not there? He gets more leading men and he gets men of insight. And these are two different types of men. These men over here, leaders, men of insight, men of persuasion, men of eloquence, men who can discern. And he sends both of those men, that set of men to Edo, who was also a leading man. And notice what he says. I sent them and I told them what to say. Look at that. Look at that right there in the text. I think it's beautiful. Look at verse 17. I sent them to Edo, the leading man at the place Cassaphia telling them what to say. So right there, Ezra discharged an entourage to go get him. Now, in my mind, I kind of think, like, I want to say, okay, he just knocked on the door. Hey, y'all should come with us. All right, we're coming. I don't think it was that easy. I've been in meetings before, and I've been in conflict before. I also know that only one family showed up. They went knocking at this city or at this synagogue. They got one family. They got one family to to agree to, to step up. It probably went something like this, that these leading men and these men of discernment, hey, guys, you guys are tripping. Why, why are y'all not coming with us? I got my wife and my kids at a river, dude. You're holding up the journey. And that, that's what they're saying. And then you got these cats over here, and they're like, wait a minute, you're not a Levite. Yeah, it means it's good for you when you go, but, but you don't know what it means to clean up blood all day. And you don't know what it means to offer sacrifices all day. And you don't know what it means to have to wear certain attire. And you don't know what it means to wash ourselves to be ceremonially unclean. You have no idea what it means for us as Levites to go and what we're dying to to follow you. There's tension there. It's not a big deal. It's a big deal to leave. I think the meeting went like that. I think it was harsh and, you know, they got it out. Ezra sent men, and then Ezra taught. And we don't know exactly what Ezra says, but I guarantee you he didn't say this. Hey, brother, your best life is in Jerusalem. I can promise you it's going to be easy. I can promise you, you know. Now, I'm guessing, but I want to make a really approximated guess based on the context of Ezra. What in the world did Ezra say to say to these men? What do we know about Ezra thus far in Ezra? Go back to Ezra chapter seven and follow these verses with me carefully. What does it say about Ezra in Ezra chapter seven, verse six? He was a scribe. Skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given and the king granted him all that he asked. So that's the first thing we see about him. He's a scribe. Skilled in what? The law of Moses. The first five books of the Bible, this dude probably had it memorized, like straight memorized. Skilled in the law of Moses. Look at what it says about Ezra in Ezra chapter 7, verse 10. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to do what? And to teach his statutes and rules in all of Israel. And so every single time Ezra's name is mentioned in Ezra chapter 7, you know what's always mentioned by it? This man had this book in his hand. He obeyed this book. He followed the God of this book. He set his heart to observe it and to teach it. And so it, it makes perfect sense that when he shows up with this entourage, you know what he's teaching when he shows up? He's putting this book right here on these men. It's not this is your best life now. No, let's crack open this word and let's see what this word says about biblical manhood. Let's go back to Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy. Let me remind you, you were made in the image of God to lead men. Let me remind you, you were made in the image of God to steward your whole life under the gaze of God, men. Let me remind you, Levites, your portion is the Lord. Do you not see in King Artaxerxes' letter that he is providing for you? He is giving you the freedom to go back, and it is the Lord working through him, telling you, you don't have to worry about your house. You don't have to worry about what you will eat. The Lord, your God, will draw near to you and bless you. It is a blessing for you, men, to get up and to go with us to minister to the Lord. It is a blessing I think he calls them out of their stupor I think he calls them out of their slumber and he does it right here through the word he's not telling them to do anything other than what they were designed to do that's why Paul writes act like man be strong Be courageous. Look at an older woman in the church as a sister in the Lord. Don't rebuke an older man. Greet him as a father in the Lord. That in Jesus Christ, men, our masculinity is restored and we can actually see and live and think and lead imperfectly and with a limp, but we can actually lead and we can do it to the glory of God. I love that he is gracious with men who are lagging. He's calling them to be who they are in Christ. And so I implore you men, if if you're struggling in this area of leadership, let's start with repentance. Let's start with owning our passivity and let's start calling it sin because it is. And let's start believing again the gospel that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom we are foremost, that he might demonstrate his perfect patience and kindness and grace for all. Let's seek the Lord and let's pray that our eyes would see what he sees. And so you might be here this morning and you might be an older man. I love this text, how the older men go after the younger men sitting in the cut. I love that. And it might be you and I want to implore you. If you see men struggling, make space and make time in your life. And if you're a younger man and you're wrestling and you're struggling, don't stay in your pride to yourself. And destroy everything around you. You can come out of hiding. We have that in the gospel. Amen. And I implore you, women, pray for your men. Encourage them. It is hard. And we need grace. And I know some of you are saying, wait a minute, man, you didn't talk about men the whole time. What does this mean?